Hello, my name is Dominique Brzezinski and I'm presenting a paranoid perspective of an interpreted language. Bear with me for a second while I uh, make sure I can hear the interpreters. I'll wing it. Okay. So the goals of this presentation are to review some vulnerabilities in an interpreted language, to understand what vulnerabilities in a high-level language look like, as well as to understand that just because you use a high-level interpreted language doesn't mean that you're immune from security problems. And I think contrary to what a lot of developers believe, the security problems aren't constrained to certain things like logic errors. Another goal is, as a security auditor, to understand how to audit software written in high-level languages and what kind of tools we may need to develop to do that and how the auditing process is different than using or looking at traditional software written in C, C++. So I'm going to define high-level programming languages and this is um, not a strict definition. But what I'm looking to focus on today are some commonly used languages uh, that are object-oriented, are interpreted, and they're languages like Ruby and Python, C-sharp, and Smalltalk, which is a bit more obscure. But from an abstract level, these issues apply to other languages like Perl, and uh, though they don't have necessarily some of the same issues uh, with object orientation. In this presentation, I'm using Ruby as the example language, but not because Ruby is any more insecure than the other languages, but simply because it's a language I really like and I care about it and I care to bother to review it. Uh, so that's the only reason for Ruby, uh, other than it also has a connection to this country since it was founded here by a researcher in Japan and is only gaining popularity in the US in the last couple years. So, when using an interpreted language, uh, developers don't have to worry about uh, direct memory manipulation and buffer overflows that can be associated with memory manipulation and errors. But using a higher level language alone does not guarantee the security of the software written in it. There are still many ways that uh, 
vulnerabilities can be introduced or exposed through use of the language uh, or without understanding how certain features uh, expose aspects of the underlying software. And as we'll see in a minute, uh, the interpreted language environment is actually very complex and it needs a lot of what we term attack surface or code that could have vulnerabilities in it that is potentially accessible to an attacker. So the interpreter is actually a complex piece of software. It's required to parse the text file that contains the source code. It has to analyze that, implement the logic, allocate space for classes, objects, and variables, and generate and execute the code on the machine to actually execute the logic of the program. It's most common for interpreters to be written in C uh, for performance reasons and that it's a very well understood language. Though it's not impossible to write an interpreter in other languages and even in some cases write the interpreter in the language that's interpreting and there is a current project to do that for Ruby. But we can get into some esoteric issues with that later. Often the standard libraries uh, that make such high-level languages uh, very good for performance reasons for developers because the libraries implement uh, very common tasks and make them easily accessible without lots of code. But most of those libraries are also written in C, and therefore they're not immune from the standard vulnerabilities like buffer overflows that exist in much C code. Now, it's a general truth that uh, the developers of language interpreters are better than the average developer. But that doesn't mean that the interpreters and the code that makes it up is free of vulnerabilities, uh, or even that those developers really deeply understand the different types of vulnerabilities that can exist in C code. So I'm going to give a couple examples. And uh, bear with me, it will take a little bit to go through these since they're source code. And I need to stay uh, at a slow pace for the interpreters. So this particular example has to do with uh, the implementation of uh, a method that operates on Ruby arrays. And in particular, it's a method that allows easy translation from binary objects to native Ruby uh, data types.
so it's very complicated code in some ways uh, that has to do a lot of parsing and uh, translation between uh, data. So the parameters to the method, this is the underlying C implementation. So str str, the first variable, is the format string for the pack operation. Char s is the data. And len, len, is the length. The very first thing the code does it attempts to allocate memory for the result of the operation. The alloc A allocates space on the stack. And it allocates space that is len times 4 divided by 3 plus 6. In the 32-bit address space, right here, if len is greater than 1 gigabyte, this multiplication will wrap and become a very small positive number. This is treated as an unsigned value. So once this right here is a small value, it can still be divided by 3, and it can still have 6 added to it. But what you end up with is a specified length that was very long, but an allocated buffer that was very short. After a little bit of processing of the data, there is a while loop that is bounded by the variable, which in this case, if it was very long, would allow the loop to go on for quite a bit of time. And then it proceeds to do some translation. In this case, this was part of the base64, or UU encode translation. So this would allow a stack-based buffer overflow. The reality that this particular condition is not exploitable due to general 32-bit address space layout restrictions. But we'll see later that these types of integer overflows were very common in the code, and not something that developers were protecting against. So this example has to do, is also on part of the array implementation. And uh, after chatting with uh, another colleague in the security space, 
who I got very excited about this, we started looking at the same code and he quickly noticed this problem. So I've clipped out much of the code so we could read it here on this page. But we can see that, uh, again, this length, it actually comes from an argument that's passed to the method. And when the variable is very long, we will pass this condition, which was based off of if beginning, which is actually essentially a memory address. It's a pointer to the beginning of the data. Plus the length that was specified as an argument creates the end value. So if there are certain constraints on lang, end will be valid, but down here, in the realloc call, which is attempting to realloc reallocate memory on the heap, realloc actually calculates the size by taking the size of this, which most commonly is four bytes, and multiplying it by end which again can easily wrap if we have a very large value for length, again greater than one gigabyte. This will cause the actual memory for the array to be very small, but the operation which writes to the array is bounded by a very large value. And this results in a heap overflow. So I'll get a bit more into uh, why that matters and some of the, uh, the attack vectors, but Unlike a standard command line program like setUID uh, or even a network server, normally the interpreter is only exposed to the software written by the developer. But not always. Sometimes source code may be derived dynamically by input, or uh, a sandbox model might be used to allow less trusted code to run in the environment. And using something like this previous issue, it might be possible for an attacker to break out of the sandbox and execute arbitrary code as the privilege of the interpreter or the piece of software that was running. 
So lesson one is that the interpreter and the binary libraries need to be audited just like any other piece of software that's written in C or C++. But unlike many other programs where not all the user input comes from or is uh, under the control of the attacker, in this case, all the code could potentially come from an attacker or you can't constrain it that way. So you need to look at every operation that can be touched by the source code or an operation that the developer directs the interpreter to do. Which essentially means that the entire program has to be relatively bug-free to guarantee any real level of security. So one thing to note that such an audit is different than ensuring that the language implementation is correct. There may be features uh, of the language like Ruby that may not work right, but that's a separate issue of whether or not the interpreter actually safely implements what the language is supposed to do. So this next, next example is of a language feature that was not implemented correctly and the ability to bypass that. Ruby implements uh, data tainting, which essentially marks data that's derived from user input. And then it is possible to set uh, safe levels that restrict the operations that can be done using that tainted data. So it's commonly thought that a safe way to sandbox untrusted code in Ruby is to create a new thread, set the safe value to appropriate. In this case, 4 is the highest, which has the greatest number of restrictions. Including the inability to do any kind of direct output. And then eval the untrusted code, which is contained in the str variable. And in this case, the value of that code is returned. This example script then tries to do a direct output operation. And then we'll see that a security error is thrown. But there's a mechanism, and this was recently disclosed publicly uh, 
just a couple weeks ago, uh, found by another Japanese researcher, that there was an ability to add a singleton method, which is a method that only belongs to a single object instance. And in doing that, that method would not be tainted. And in this example, the 2S method, which translates the object to a printable string, was overwritten so that when the object was printed, it would actually be able to do direct output, which would normally violate the security model. I'll run the code to show you. So the first case in the code, we can see that correctly a security exception was thrown when we tried to do direct output. But in the second case, we were able to output this string, which would not be allowed. So of course this is fixed now in the newest versions. But it's an example of if a program had predicated its security on a safe mechanism, it would have been possible for people to violate that at some point. So lesson two is that execution restrictions within a language are a good thing, but they're very, very difficult to implement. In particular, you have to make sure that it is mathematically not possible to do the same semantic meaning in code as the one that you're restricting. And given that programming languages often allow you to implement anything, and in dynamic languages, you can often change the behavior of the language, then this becomes very hard to do correctly and with any kind of assurance that there's no way around the mechanism. So I like using them, using such restriction methods, but I would not suggest that a security model or the security of a particular application be predicated 
are not working. So another example, and this is of a more traditional style of exploit, which is remote command execution against a server. A vulnerability was introduced that allowed any program that used the XML RPC library to be vulnerable to remote command execution by anybody who could connect to the service. The vulnerability was actually introduced between the 1.6 language and the 1.8 language. When the default semantics for a function was changed. The fix, this is the actual patch, was to call this method public instance methods with a false parameter. And the reason for that was that originally this method only returned the list of methods for the current class, but not for any ancestors of that class that it inherited from. And it changed to a default of including all ancestors. Which in this case allowed some unsafe methods to be automatically added to the object. So I want to take a second to iterate that we are seeing vulnerabilities at very different levels in the language. Some from very low in the interpreter that have to do with standard memory management and handling and integer calculations. All the way up to vulnerabilities that are very specific to particular classes in the language and are very high level. I have another example, which we found by accident, which is actually how we found many of these. Uh, some were public, but the ones that we found, we just kind of stumbled across. Uh, we found an issue in, the, there is a native Ruby web server, Webrick. And it implements SSL. But we found a denial of service condition during our testing. And when we tracked down the source of it, 
we realized that this was actually probably a very common software problem. And had to do with many high-level languages implement exception handling. Which is a very powerful feature. But sometimes it changes the control path of the program. I'll show you the difference in the code now. On your left is the fixed code. On the right was the original code. And this block just actually accepts the TCP connection and does some work. And it uses a simple token reference scheme to know if there is an available thread to handle the current connection. What the developer didn't realize was though they put in exception handling for some standard socket based exceptions, that the SSL library actually too created exceptions if a handshake was terminated prematurely. In the original code, that would cause one of the tokens to be leaked. And so, if the condition occurred several times, the server would no longer accept connections because it would not believe that it had any threads available. So the simple fix was just to ensure that a token was replaced if an exception occurred. But we're sure that there are probably many other security vulnerabilities present, not just denial of services. That are the result of very generic exception handlers and the developer not being aware that an underlying library that they're using in their code might cast an exception and cause the control flow of their program to change.
So the third lesson. is that building on other code, whether it is provided by another developer in your group or through a standard library or through standard object-oriented programming practices, is good for many reasons, but it also can be a great source of security problems. The real issue is that the ancestor classes, where the inheritance comes from, or the library itself, may include code or methods that is not suitable and unsafe for your application. And though the code works under the normal case, it may also do a lot more than the developer intended it, including something that might be unsafe. So it's often necessary to actually override existing technology or existing features in order to remove them, even when you want to inherit particular functionality from a class or from a library. And as we saw in the previous example, also understanding their exception model and when errors can happen and what the expected results of a method call will be. And often developers just don't take enough time to really understand those constraints. And so we see the inclusion of unsafe code by accident. So traditional security audits of software, there are a couple kinds. There's static source code analysis. which is just simply looking at the source code of the program as text and looking for common API calls or code constructs that are possibly unsafe. An example of that may be looking for stir copy in a C program. But in interpreted in dynamic languages, the code may actually change itself on execution based off of its execution environment or off of user input. So examples of that might be a class that is designed to wrap a database table. And when a new column is defined in the table, to automatically add methods that allow access and setting of values in that column. Or something that might be much more obscure, 
but it is often very difficult to tell how code might actually be changed and what input might cause changes in the code if the developer has used a large amount of what's called reflective programming, which is simply the ability for a program to look at its own structure and modify it dynamically while the program's executing. One of the things we see in languages like Python and Ruby is that often vulnerabilities come from not the inclusion of unsafe methods, but the exclusion of enough code to limit the inherited functionality from an underlying class or from a library that's included. Which means that it's very hard to do things like grep because you're looking for something that's not there. And unless you know that a particular method should in the general case be called with a given set of parameters, you won't find things like this easily through standard text searching. And if you think what some static source code analysis tools would do would partially execute the program, i.e. parse the source code and get the lexical tree and look for certain things or certain constructs in it. But if you think about an interpreted language, you're most of the way to executing it at that point. And so it is still useful, but uh, often more complicated still. On the plus side, interpreted languages tend to have more functional density. And so that means per thousand lines of code, you can do much more. And usually applications then are much shorter or much smaller when you look at how much source code is involved. So that means manual review is a bit easier of a process to some degree just based on less volume. But there is hope for some automated analysis or at least tools that can help a manual review be more focused and make sure that there's better coverage of the audit. And I'll go over a very brief example of that at the end. So another very popular technique for security auditing and vulnerability discover, discovery is binary analysis. And that has the ability to actually decompile the executable and look at it from an assembly or opcode level and look for certain classes of vulnerabilities 
though some people are quite skilled and have great tools, that for them it's not much different than looking at the source code. But it's a bit more true because they're seeing exactly what the data type is or the value of the data versus possibly many levels of indirection, for instance, through type defs in C. But in an interpreted program, there is no binary associated with it other than the binary of the interpreter itself. So I think a lot of binary analysis should be done on the interpreter and on the C libraries, the standard C libraries that come with it. But it's less useful for auditing the end application that's written in the interpreted language. I was speaking with David Maynard last night about this presentation, and he did bring up an in interesting idea that would allow some level of binary analysis. And that is using a debugger or a feature to dump the binary image of the process of the interpreted application at various stages in its execution path. And then using traditional disassemblers and tools like Ida Pro to do analysis at that point. But that may be a lot of work because you have to capture uh, dumps at many different places in the execution path because certain kinds of objects might not be created at certain points in the execution. And so it is a potentially good idea, but we don't really have a good concept of whether or not it'll actually be very useful or in what cases it will be. So dynamic analysis, which the method we just talked about would be one form of dynamically capturing binary images. But as I mentioned before, introspection and reflection are two common features in interpreted object-oriented languages. And that gives the program the ability to look at its own structure throughout execution. And so it may be possible for us to build specific auditing modules that can be included in a program, for instance, in a test environment, and generate much output that would be useful for the security auditor to constrain their audit to the things that are actually used by the program and get a sense of how the program is using them dynamically and whether or not objects or classes are being extended throughout the execution or whether or not they're staying fixed to how they're defined in the source code. So there's some examples of uh, these kinds of tools actually are 
uh, useful to developers in general, but modifications of them may be quite useful for security auditors. So manual code review, which is simply just reading the code, is probably one of the best ways currently to evaluate the security of an application written in interpreted language. But the trick is, is actually understanding what should be in scope of the review. And one might think that that's just the source code of the interpreted program. But the reality is that may often include the interpreter itself, its C source code for the interpreter, or the C source code for libraries that are used by the program, or third-party libraries used. And if you really want to know how secure the program is, you may need to include at least some of this in an audit. And I think that's what's really been missing. And those pieces have not been brought into the scope of security audits. And traditionally, people have just been looking at the interpreted programs and looking for simple things like whether or not the program took untrusted input and use that as a parameter to, say, a shell exec or something else like that. So, as we talked about with the dynamic tools, that can really help determine what libraries are used, what classes are used, and then while you're reading the source code, you can understand if the program is using a lot of reflective programming to dynamically change itself. And if it is, then you need to understand, A, is this data that is controllable by an attacker? And if it is, then what kind of methods that are implemented by the interpreter are being called with this data? And that might focus you at parts of the interpreter source code or the language implementation that need to be reviewed to make sure that those operations are safe and can deal with untrusted data that's possibly large in size or contains unexpected uh, characters, etc. An example of that, if we go back, would be, for instance, uh, in the heap overflow case, that was uh, using the array.fill method. And so using that, if the program allowed code to be included from a less trusted source, so for instance, say it was a web hosting company that allowed some Ruby to be embedded in HTML for server-side processing, but attempted to do that, say, in a sandbox with safe level set to four, the developer or a 
untrustworthy party, whether or not they got access to that HTML content um, directly because they bought a hosting account with the intent of subverting the hosting site, or whether or not they get access to somebody else's hosting account, could include a bit of Ruby code that would run successfully in the sandbox, but could actually trigger the heap overflow in the interpreter to take over the web server. Another example, though it wasn't exploitable, but there is a pro problem, though not that bad of a problem, in the object.inspect, and specifically in the IO class. And the .inspect would take the string that is a source code file and the name of the class concatenate them in a string that was allocated on the stack and display it. If you had an environment where a method or a class was created off of user input and somebody could specify a very long class name, that could have been a problem and caused a stack-based overflow. That particular issue wasn't actually exploitable, but that was one we found in four minutes. So imagine if we actually spent a few days auditing, we probably might find something similar that was exploitable. So that's an avenue that hasn't been talked about much. And as these languages are becoming more uh, prominent and more software, especially web software, is being developed with them. You can see as the applications get more complicated and the developers get more familiar with the more powerful language features, that kind of programming will become more common. As I mentioned a bit before, there are pitfalls with inheritance. And one of the great things about Ruby or Python is that you have tremendous sets of classes of very rich, that create very rich objects that are easy to inherit a tremendous amount of functionality from. But with that functionality may come functionality that you do not need, or possibly that you really do not want based off of the security constraints of your program. So in reality, though three lines of code, overriding a class or uh, inheriting from a class and overriding a couple methods may give you a solution to your problem. it's quite possible it doesn't do it safely. So unfortunately, it means the developer needs to be aware and review the functionality in the inheritance hierarchy to see what kinds of methods they should override and exclude from their desired class and what class variables and constants and things like that need to be set to safe values. 
And so unfortunately, though you can solve the problem in three lines of code, it may take another 30 to do it safely in a robust application. So I've talked a bit about reflection. And again, reflection is the ability to dynamically change the structure of an executing program from within the program itself. And if you're auditing a program that uses a tremendous amount of reflection, or even reflection in a critical point, it's really important to understand what data that change is based off of and to make sure that that is constrained. So an example I thought of was that in Ruby, you can override an existing method. So you can imagine a case where, based off of some user input, a new method might be created. But what happens if the user specifies uh, input that would cause a method to be named that of a core or a required method that needed to be secure or needed to operate the way you expected it to operate? Normally in Ruby, that would be allowed. And if you didn't filter that input or protect those methods correctly, then attacker might be able to override a method that's critical to the functionality of your program. Another part of reflection is that, again, parts of the interpreter that would normally not be exposed to the end user. Normally the end user is just exposed to the functionality of the program, but the end user does not specify the source code that's being interpreted by the user, or excuse me, by the interpreter. But if the code to the program is dynamically changing itself, if those changes are inappropriate or, or controllable by the attacker, then it may expose deep implementation problems in the interpreter itself, or in the C implementation, uh, in the memory management of the interpreter, things like that, or in the parser itself. For instance, I have not looked at all at the actual chunk of code that parses the text file that contains a source or parses a string that includes source code. And Parsers traditionally have had problems, too. Uh, ASN1 was a really good example of that, and there have been other ones. So another issue is, as we talked about, sandboxes for untrusted code. And though there's a mechanism that looks very nice to do it in Ruby, and Perl has a similar one called safe, um, most languages actually of this class do have some mechanism or you can implement some mechanism to limit uh, what untrusted or less trusted code can do. If you're going to do that and use that as the basis of the security of your application, then you need to know that the language implementation 
of the features that do the sandboxing are correct, and that the interpreter uh, doesn't have any vulnerabilities in it that can be tripped up through common code. And again, we look back at that uh, array.pack issue, uh, the array.fill issue, um, the io.inspect, um, and those were ones that, again, we literally noticed in, you know, 20 minutes of just grepping through some source code for the interpreter, and those weren't the result of any deep audit or analysis. And probably when the time is put into it, there will be a fair number of issues that are found. And my fear, and my expectation actually, is that that will be true also for Perl and Python and most of the other interpreted languages out there. So, what does this all mean? It means programs written in all languages can have exploitable problems, and that languages written, or programs written in higher level languages are not constrained to only logic errors. That was a common thought with Java, for instance, that you no longer have buffer overflows but people could still make logic flaws. And a matter of fact, there's been a move in the, you know, uh, vulnerability research domain to look for more application and logic level flaws and less for buffer overflows. Because on some platforms at least, there are memory protections to stop or mitigate buffer overflows. But the reality is, is that in Java 2, I'm sure, uh, the vulnerabilities are not just constrained to that. But in the common case, the uh, program may not be vulnerable because the program just simply does some fairly simple things. But in larger business applications uh, or more complicated applications, more advanced programming techniques might be used that could actually expose uh, deeper problems in the interpreter. And programs that need a very high level of security cannot rely on the implementation language to deliver it. Just because your program is written in Java or written in Ruby does not inherently guarantee that large classes of security vulnerabilities are not present. What does help is correct architecture, thorough review, thorough understanding from the developers part of classes and libraries that they're using and the semantics of those, and programming strategies that mitigate the exposure if a component is compromised as well as uh, OS level protections, for instance, on memory, uh, for instance, OpenBSD with um, non-executable stacks and randomized address spaces. Uh, those things also help. So.
to get a secure program, you're looking at a combination of design, development, execution platform, and you just can't rely on one mechanism alone. Another issue is that we need much better analysis tools in the security community as a security professional or a developer that has a security focus in an organization to help us audit programs that aren't traditionally compiled to binaries or aren't written in the very common languages that people have created tools for understand well. So I'm going to give a brief example. Uh, uh, this is not good code. <laughs> and uh, it's not something that's usable yet, but I want to get it to some place where it can be released and will be helpful. But it's an example of using reflection itself in order to uh, show the class inheritance hierarchy and um, the methods that exist in all the classes that are used by a particular program. And again, this is trying to get to uh, tools to allow dynamic analysis of a program in order to focus the auditor on what needs to be reviewed and what exactly is going on in the program as it's executing. So this Ruby, how many of you are familiar with Ruby? Anybody? <laughs> um, it's a great language, by the way. But here's an example, and something similar can be done in other languages. And uh, this short program just creates a global variable that's an array. There is a class, class, and matter of fact, all classes are inherited from class. And simply what this is doing is extending class, and it's simply changing the name of the original new, which is the function that's the uh, initializer for a class. Then it's creating a new initializer that calls the original one, and then looks at the object that it gets back, figuring out what class it is, and then calling a call that gets all the ancestors, so all the inherited classes, and putting that in the array. And then when the program exits, this is just a trap to catch the exit, it loops through all the classes it's seen, puts the name of the class, it puts out the list of the ancestors, and then it lists all the public methods, all the protected methods, all the private methods, singleton methods, which are methods that are added specifically to an object. 
class variables and class constants. What did I name that? Uh, so this is a very simple program that just actually creates a new class that inherits from the string class and then creates an object, does some stuff with the object, puts some, a value into it and prints it. But right up here, what we're actually doing is requiring or including the code from that program we just saw. So while this program executes, it'll actually be instrumented by the audit code. And it actually wrote the results to a file. And so as we look down here, we see that the class foo actually inherited from string, which inherited from object. And we see that it actually did not define any new methods of its own or any variables or constants. We see that string inherited from object, the public methods, no protected methods, a few privates. Then we see these that are kind of a Ruby particular thing called modules that are essentially like a class that cannot be instantiated to an object, but are simply meant to provide methods or variables that can be called on their own or can be included in another class to extend it. But they're structured similar to a class, so they have public methods, etc. And we can see the base class object here, which has many methods that have to do with looking at objects themselves and then also kernel, which is also a base module that every object gets. And we can see in it that, ooh, hold on, let me find, where is it? Oh, maybe it's up. Oh, I'm trying to find where ancestors live. But anyways, this was everything that was actually instantiated and used in that simple program. So the idea would be to make a more robust, robust version of that audit module that can just be included, say, in the test environment or even in a production environment where you're not worried so much about performance and be included in and then you let the program run for a while under a normal case. And when it's done, you get a listing of everything that was actually used, what the inheritance chain looks like, and the methods 
and constants and variables that were actually present on those classes. And this gives at least a guidance or a checklist for an auditor to go through and understand those and look at and evaluate that code and make sure it's correct. So that's just a, one idea of using reflection and using dynamic programming to actually help an auditor understand what's going on in the program that may not be easily discerned from the source code itself. That concludes my slides. Does anybody have any questions? <laughs> I'm going to force my boss to ask me a question. <laughs> so, uh, so now that you've played around with Perl and Ruby, and I don't know if you've played around with PHP or others, um, your sense of a, which ones are uh, most convenient to develop in and offer maybe the most inherent security? Some developers on one project are maybe more competent than developers on another project. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess what I'm getting at is there's a wide selection of, of interpreted languages to choose from. So how would you give guidance in selecting one? Ah, yes. Um, There are a lot of variables. Some languages, like Perl, have had a lot of development work and have been very popular. So a lot of people have contributed to that project, and it's fairly mature. I've not actually looked at the code of that yet, but given our experience in the security industry and our experience with uh, when and how many vulnerabilities are present, I can't fathom that there aren't vulnerabilities in the Perl interpreter as there are in other interpreters. But like anything else, uh, most of these open or most of these languages are open source or have uh, an open development community. So one aspect is how well does that community respond to bugs? and how well do they fix them? And then two would be, is there anybody in that community that's actively doing security assessment of libraries and of the interpreter? Um, I'm hoping that A, the Ruby community has um, been good about fixing bugs quickly, um, but it's still a relatively new thing. Like. I'm not sure that I've seen a vulnerability disclosure from that community that's older than this last year. So I think that people have only started looking at that because it's only started to get a bit more popular. So I hope to, you know, get other people interested in and do some myself to make Ruby better. But I think all the uh, languages need a group of people that kind of understand security and get focused on that because I don't think any of them really do. Things like PHP have been uh, 
fairly good targets because they've been used extensively in web environments and web environments have traditionally had a lot of attackers. Um, so it's been picked on a lot. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. So right now I couldn't tell you that one language is better than another or more secure. Uh, I think they're all used at your own risk. And in some ways I think you pick the language that is, is best for you and best for the application. But at this point, if the application needs very high security, I think it's going to be up to you to spend some time doing some review of that. Uh, and I'd like to see that because I'd like to see them all get better because there are a lot of developers who aren't aware of these issues but are still writing important applications. So in some ways this is a call to arms to get those of us in the security industry who are interested in programming or do do security audit work uh, to spend some time with whatever our favorite language or development environment is and start taking a look at it. Do you have any other questions? <laughs> he throws his hands up. Okay, well thank you very much. Oh, oh. Which is, which is um, when it comes time to debug, yes, debug one of these programs from a security standpoint. Yes, um, is it any easier then to figure out what went wrong? Any have better instrumentation or better logging or better, yeah. than, say a traditional C or yes, yeah, yeah. In general, these languages do have much better instrumentation. Um, in the way they're written, oftentimes when a problem happens, they give a whole stack backtrace of function calls and even lines within the source code of where the issue happens. Um, it may not be true in, in all cases if somebody finds a very deep bug in the interpreter, but an example, even a small example, was uh, in this one, a normal C program, if it seg faulted, we would just get a message possibly from the operating system uh, that just told us there was a seg fault. If the developers instrumented the program correctly, it may tell us more. But you see here already that it's associated with the line of code from our program that caused it. And it tells us at least what version this was. Didn't give us a full stack dump, but that's because there was no stack available in this program. Right? It was, there was no method calls. Um, so if we were logging the output of this, say it was a network server, uh, it may be much easier to notice when things go wrong or if somebody is trying to exploit a bug. And we may get much more focused in on exactly where it's happening. And it's true just as a general debugging thing. Um, I have an application that runs all the time 
and when it's had bugs, I don't think that there's been a bug that's taken, you know, more than an hour, but usually they're five minute fixes, and that's never true with C for the most part. So uh, it, it is easier for developers, um, and it probably could be easier for a security conscious person to um, notice if something's going on with their application and figuring out what it is. The bug may be very deep, but at least you can focus in on what it is. Thank you very much.